The French are rioting against Emmanuel Macron's pensions reforms. Is it time we learnt their lesson? That's our main story for tonight. I'm joined all evening by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing? Michael, I'm doing very well as Navarra's resident OAP. I think I'm particularly suited to this topic this evening. You are closest to pension age. Maybe you can sort of explain how it all works to me. Um, we are also going to be talking about Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England. He's been talking about whether or not people in businesses should now show some restraint when it comes to prices as well as wage restraint. Lawrence Fox, what kind of father is he? Um, and we'll be talking about Nadine Doris very briefly at the end. First story. Riots and protests erupted across France last night in opposition to President Macron's plans to increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. This was the BBC's report. Bordeaux's town hall set alight by protesters overnight. More than a million had taken to the streets across the country through the day, angry at President Macron's raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64. In Paris, where over 100,000 had marched in a largely peaceful demonstration, the night was also hijacked by violent protesters. Running battles through the capital centre between small groups and the police saw bins set on fire, projectiles hurled and tear gas launched in response. There were clashes too in cities, including Lille, Strasbourg, Nantes and Toulouse. The News Agents podcast also shot some pretty dramatic footage in Paris. Um, Lewis Goodall was there. He said the French police were on pretty brutal form using batons indiscriminately against those in their way. Apparently, even one of the News Agents' team was batoned. That was despite them saying they were press. He also said local people told him there hadn't been enough firefighters. And so people brought hoses, buckets and saucepans full of water out of their apartments to douse the flames. The unrest has led King Charles to have his state visit to Paris postponed. Macron explained the decision in a press conference today. Je crois que vous voyez la situation liée justement aux protestations en raison de la réforme des retraites en France. À partir du moment où hier soir, l'intersyndicale a annoncé une nouvelle journée de mobilisation mardi et que la visite du roi était prévue de lundi à mercredi, je pense que nous ne serions pas sérieux et nous manquerions d'un certain bon sens à proposer à Sa Majesté le Roi et à la Reine Consort de venir faire une visite d'État au milieu des manifestations. And this is how Sky News covered the cancellation of the state visit. One thing I love about this though, is the fact that this is a dispute about raising the pension age to 64. The king is 74 and still working full time. I don't know if that was mentioned, but I think he had much sympathy for the strikers. Potentially not. What an embarrassing country we inhabit. Being a king is not a job. Right, and you've got these, these huge protests in this country hundreds of years after they had their revolution and got rid of the um, hereditary monarch. And we're still using our monarch as an example as to why people should work until they die because the king and queen do it. Right? It's not a job. Being the king is much easier than most jobs in society because it's not a job. Um, in any case, the protests, as you've seen, have already cancelled a state visit. But will they cancel Macron's reforms? Earlier today, I spoke to Cole Stangler, a journalist based in Paris. I began by asking him about some commentary you heard in the first clip we showed you. The BBC there said demonstrations had been hijacked by violent protesters. And I asked Cole if that was right. No, I don't think it's it's fair to say that the demonstrations were hijacked by violent protesters. If you look at the numbers overall in France yesterday, we had over 3 million people in the streets, according to unions. 
uh, over 1 million, according to the interior ministry. So somewhere in between, um, you know, we're talking about mass marches, a lot of families, older people, uh, kids. So for the most part, uh, very, very peaceful. Uh, it looks like in a few occasions in a few cities, Paris in particular, um, you had some confrontations between uh, black bloc uh, anarchist types and the police. This is something that isn't new in France that we've actually had for uh, really for the last several years uh, in, in particular. And so it, 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 you know, these confrontations get attention depending on the, on the particular political moment. And I think what we've seen as this protest movement has dragged on is that you have maybe uh, certain elements that, that have decided that this is sort of the right moment to, to sort of uh, be, be more confrontational. But at the same time, I think this is maybe the more important point to, to make, uh, which is that the police have also become extremely confrontational. And the videos that we've been seeing uh, really on, on social media and on the news, frankly, uh, in France uh, have been have been you know quite quite stunning. We've seen Amnesty International talk about uh, uh, the need for for reigning in French police violence. Um, so you do have some you know some confrontations, but I think overall, still the the story is really we're talking about between one and three million people protesting nationwide. You have these you know largely peaceful mass mobilizations, and that's really the main story. And I think an impression we get in the UK when people are looking on at protests and riots in France is this sense that, you know, the French, they know how to do this. They know how to kick up a fuss in the street, cause a bit of chaos. And that's why um, the French have managed to keep some of their social rights when we in the UK haven't managed to to defend them. I mean, do you think that's a an accurate perspective and assessment of what's going on? The movement has been successful uh, in part because uh, it's appealed to a, a a, a mass general audience um, and people feel comfortable to come out to demonstrations. So you have uh, broad unity among the major labor organizations in France going from the moderate unions all the way to the more militant left-wing ones. And so the atmosphere is very family friendly. And I think that's why the movement has been broadly supported um, really up until this point. You know, if you look at the polls now, two thirds of people still support the, the protest movement. I think what we're seeing, uh, I, th I think that the main story here is that that continued, you know, peaceful uh, mobilization. But we, we do see, you know, some, you know, spikier actions that, that, are, that are being planned. And I think it's important to distinguish as well between are we talking about um, certain tactics at protests or are we talking about, um, you know, unions and the way that unions are organizing, organizing blockades, you know, uh, in, uh, taking over space, you know, uh, certain tactics that I think are more militant. And I think they're not necessarily the, 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 the same thing, um, if that makes sense. I think French unions, you know, as this conflict has, has dragged on, are starting to be a little bit more creative uh, in their tactics. For instance, uh, I was at, uh, you know, not far from, from where I live here in Marseille, there's a, a major industrial zone where you have uh, refineries and fuel depots. And the unions here in Marseille have really tried to, um, you know, mobilize in support of these of these workers that have been facing uh, back to work orders, and, and really they, they tried to take on the, the the riot police. I think there's no other way to to to, to put it. That's able to, uh, you know, I, I think I think mobilize a certain part of the, of the population. But it's a really it's a really difficult question. I, I think I think it's really a mix of both. I think uh, ultimately you have these mass marches that are very peaceful. You also have, in addition to that, people that are you know, somewhat willing to, to get a little bit more creative and, and confrontational. And perhaps, um, you know, if you wanted to simplify, maybe it's a combination of, of really both knowing how to 
knowing how to use both, you know, both. And, and people obviously disagree as well um, on, on both sides of that. Let's take a step back. I mean, another thing people from Britain will be looking at is saying, yes, you guys know how to protest. Um, but also in, in France, what they are protesting is something which is actually a better deal than what we already have here. So Macron, obviously, the intention is to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. In this country, it's already 66 and going to be going up at some point to 68. So what do you think it is about French culture that means that this increase from 62 to 64 is seen as something which is socially unacceptable? I think the fact that movement is going on right now, um, you know, is in, in a lot of ways a response to the way the government has been, uh, the way the government approved this bill, which is to say that not having an up or down vote in parliament using this constitutional measure that allows it to, to approve uh, uh, legislation without vote. So I think a lot of the frustration is is not only about the, the pension issue itself, but actually the, the, the methods of the government perceived as very um, undemocratic, even authoritarian uh, by many. So I think that's a big part of the of the the frustration right now that we're seeing. But yes, of course, from the beginning of the movement, so starting in January, the pension issue obviously uh, and it gets people very, very, very excited and, and, and very upset that the government wants to wants to roll back people's rights. I think you know there's 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 a few things going on. One is if you talk to people on the on the left and, and the labor movement in France, I think people consider the right to retire with dignity to be really a fundamental uh, right that, that, that unions have, have fought for and won. They put it in this sort of long history of, of, having, of winning the right to have time away from work. So that starts off with you know, getting rid of child labor, then it means having the weekend, um, so Sunday, then Saturday off, then reducing working hours, then having the right to retire, then lowering the retirement age. So it's really part of this broader narrative of winning um, time away from work. And so they see the right to retire with dignity and lowering the, the retirement age as sort of a, a pillar of, of social progress, I think is, is, is really a way to put it. So it's a very uh, important issue for the left and for the labor movement. And then I think what we, we've seen with the mobilization, this obviously isn't just uh, left wing and, and labor activists that are in the streets. The, the broader population feels invested in this as well. And that's because the French pension system, I think, is, is fairly effective. Um, you know, it's part of the social contract here. People spend, people contribute fairly high shares of their salary um, from when they start working into the system. And at the end of the day, they expect to have uh, a, a decent pension. If you look at what's called the net replacement rate, so the amount of, of pension benefits compared to what people were earning over their careers, it's fairly high uh, in France. And so there's a sense that the system is effective and it works. And so again, I think that the way that I think, think about this is the government is really trying to change unilaterally the, the, the social contract in France. I think that's why a lot of people are so animated about this issue. And do you think part of the story here is that Macron, this is his second term, there are term limits, he can't stand again as president. You know, the party he built was, you know, just in his image, it wasn't a pre-existing party. So do you think he feels like, you know, there's not much at stake in terms of public popularity, he can do whatever he wants? He can implement the will of international capital with no um, practical outcome to him because he's not going to stand again. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the, the million dollar question is what is, is going on in, in Macron's head right now? Why would you invest so much political capital in this uh, issue that is that is you know blowing up in, 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 you know, in, in front of the government's face? Um, I think, you know, what you mentioned is, is, is certainly seems to be part of it. Um, I think another factor and, and again, you know, I don't know how worth you know how much it is how much it's worth speculating about you know Macron's inner inner psychology, but I think 
what's fair to what, what's fair to say is when you when you speak with people that that have interacted with him and uh, if you read the reports uh, uh, about what's going on in the Elysee is I think the president seems to be pretty disconnected from from reality. I, I don't really know how to put that otherwise. Um, I think they're 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 somewhat isolated, and I think that they didn't certainly didn't didn't expect the movement to be as strong as it is. Um, and again, very similar to the to the yellow vest moment uh, in, in late 2018, early 2019, where we saw a government that that was sort of hoping to wait it out, wait out the crisis, maybe look at those, maybe hope the protests would would die down. And when they didn't die down, um, you know, the crisis just got got more and more significant. So um, it's difficult to say what's what's going on uh, through their minds. I think they expected the movement to 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 sort of peter out, and and that obviously isn't happening. We have another protest, uh, National Day of Strike scheduled next week. So, you know, the more this goes on, could that maybe force the, the government's hand? Um, you know, potentially, again, moderate union leaders are trying to give the government an exit ramp, uh, you know, way to, 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 to reduce some of the tensions here to, to calm things down. And, you know, Laurent Berger, the head of the moderate labor confederation, the CFDT, has said, Maybe we could have a pause on this issue for a few months again. That's a that's a great exit ramp, so to speak, for the government. But so far, they haven't shown much interest in, um, in you know taking these kinds of opportunities uh, because right now, again, the situation is 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 escalating. Um, and I think that there's really one side that's to blame for that, which is Macron and the French government. Leading the news in the UK is that King Charles's state visit has been postponed. Um, is is that being taken as a victory for the protesters, or could people not really care less? No, I think people were were, were quite excited to see that uh, happen. Um, you know, obviously the the issue, you know, the the the, the somewhat you know silly rivalry for France and England, I think, plays into that. The, the king also. We're now in this. We have a president uh, who perhaps thinks of himself as being somewhat. Um, you know, monarchy uh, uh, himself, Mélenchon, Jean-Luc Mélenchon made, made a, a comparison about the two kings having to cancel their meeting. So I think people were, were, were pretty happy about that. That was Cole Stangler explaining the politics of pensions in France. Although now I'm saying it, I'm wondering if it was Cole Stangler because he is uh, French-American and that would probably be the French pronunciation. In any case, let's talk about pensions here in the UK um, because this week we did get some good news on pensions. Plans to increase the retirement age to 68 have been postponed. The bad news is that it didn't happen because of any popular opposition, but rather because British life expectancy has itself fallen. Um, The state pension age, which is currently 66, had been due to rise to 68 after 2037. The government is now set to push that date further back. So Steve Webb is a former pensions minister. He told the Financial Times this. The improvement in life expectancy at retirement that was predicted at the time of the last pension age review basically didn't happen. Life expectancy at retirement now is two years shorter than it was when they did the last review. And Baroness Ros Altman, who is also uh, another former pensions minister, told the FT this. This is, of course, partly due to the pandemic's impact on older people. But the ongoing NHS backlogs and crisis in elderly care are also likely to prevent a sudden resumption of life expectancy rises. Aaron. A little bit depressing, isn't it? So you've got in France, they're trying to move their pension age from 62 to 64. You've got the huge popular mobilization in the streets. I mean, Macron might push it through, but it's going to be at the expense of, you know, enormous political capital. In the UK, you know, the only thing stopping the pension age rising from 66 to 68 was the fact that we're not living as long as it was expected that we might have done. Says so much about where we are as a country, doesn't it, Michael? 
I mean, there's so much to talk about here because you've got obviously the situation in France and the situation in the UK. And watching the coverage there, Michael, it didn't make me think, you know, if you did see similar scenes in this country of people burning down the Tower Hall in, in, in Bordeaux, what would the response be from the organized trade union movement in this country, from the TUC, from Unison? What would it be? I can guarantee you there wouldn't be any more marches. And I think that goes to something quite important about the political culture of this country and the political culture of organized labor. I'm one of the first people to defend organized labor. We need powerful unions, but I think the way that the, the TUC works in particular, which is really this, it was built for another age of craft unions, small unions, and its relationship to the state, I think is fundamentally about demobilizing and disempowering working people to improve their, their living chances and their, their living standards. Um, that seems to be its role almost. If you look at its role since austerity, since 2010, there was a demonstration in March 2011 with Vuvuzelas, half a million people go on the streets, a little bit of violence, and that was it. We've not really seen anything else since, you know? So Vuvuzelas and a few whistles in the street and, you know, some, uh, some trending hashtags. But as we've seen, that really doesn't make much difference. Then going to uh, the reasons why the pension age isn't being increased in this country, so important to say to our audience, those watching at home and listening later on in the podcast, life expectancy falls in this country are not just because of COVID. Today, average life expectancy for both men and women today is lower than it was in 2011. Um, it's lower than it was in 2011 for women, and yet the pension age for women, I believe, is 65. It was 60 in 2010. So the, the pension age, you've, you've got to wait another five years to retire, and yet women are statistically dying earlier today than they were in 2011 when people were retiring at 60. An extraordinary, extraordinary shift. And an ancillary point to all of this, Michael, the right-wing press and the Tories love to say, people aren't having enough kids. Well, that's for a bunch of reasons, because it doesn't pay to... Um, go to work and then to spunk thousands on childcare. Uh, people can't get on the housing ladder. Bunch of reasons that people aren't having children. But not having access to free childcare when it comes to grandparents is also a massive, massive deal. And there are so many grandparents out there who would love to help raise their grandchildren, but they can't because rather than retire at 60, they're retiring now at 65. I'm talking here about, about grandmothers in particular. You know, th these are quite basic fibers of the social fabric to do that most basic fundamental of things, which is to literally reproduce the country, and if you're a capitalist, reproduce its labor power, and our political elite is, is sleeping on it. So yes, it's not just COVID, and a question to you and our audience, Michael, if similar scenes were playing out in this country in response to a similar move by the government, how long before they would be disowned by the quote-unquote mainstream organizations of the labor movement? I'm going to, I think, probably about five seconds. Um, it wouldn't take very long. It would be, there'd be so much pressure for everyone to tweet. You've got to tweet your condemnation. Um, and everyone would go, why have they not yet tweeted their condemnation? That's the kind of thing you'd imagine. Um, I know you're writing a book on ageing populations. Um, I wondered if you can sort of explain, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this beforehand, so I feel a little bit yeah. bad, but could you talk about the sort of, the, the argument surrounding the economics of, you know, should retirement age be 62? Should it be 64? Should it be 66? Should it be 68? What's the, what are the arguments here? How should we understand this kind of policy debate? Well, it is a live debate. And it's one of those questions where you don't want the, <clears throat> you don't want the left and, and, and critical thinkers to just ignore the facts. And of course, some of this is, is in response to facts, which are that 
we have an ever-growing population of the elderly, particularly of the oldest old. It's important to say that while we're seeing flatlining stagnation in life expectancy, that is indexed onto um, wealth and therefore health inequality. So the very poorest are seeing their life expectancy fall, but the very, very wealthy, wealthiest, and of course, just fortunate people in general, are living to older and older ages. I mean, standout examples here are, of course, you know, Queen Elizabeth. I think she died at, what, 96? And Prince Philip died at 98. If you look at US presidents, Jimmy Carter, did he make 100? His wife, did, is she still alive? You know, is he still alive? I don't know. But look, late 90s, same with um, George W. Bush, uh, Clinton, uh, George Bush uh, Sr. You know, they live now as their late 80s, early 90s. Now, these, these are the wealthiest people in the wealthiest societies. But it's it's clear now that societies have, wealthier societies, but all societies in time, will have a big chunk of what's called the oldest old. And they have tremendously expensive healthcare needs. Now, at the same time as you have an aging population, you have a comparative shrinking of the working age population. Why? Because at the same time that life expectancy is improving, uh, for some, not for all, you're also seeing people having fewer children. So the fertility rate is going down, which means you have comparatively fewer taxpayers to pay for uh, an increasingly costly bill uh, when it comes to your what's called your dependents, your pensioners, but also children. We're not having children, so children's less of an issue. Now, when people talk about, about the dependency ratio, they, they really mean older people. And this is a genuine problem for capitalism. It is a genuine problem for capitalism to not have a, a free tap of labor. It's a genuine problem. And it's going to be one of the major challenges to growth over the next century, frankly. Um, because, of course, when you have fewer workers, they can demand more for their wages um, because there's lower supply. Wages go up. That can lead to rising inflation. Let's not get into the macroeconomics of it too much, but it's a new challenge of just not having free labor around the world. Uh, we're likely to see the plant's population peak this century at 10 to 11 billion. So this is a global uh, situation I'm referring to with more and more people living into old age and a shrinking working age population. And in fact, the countries at the leading edge of this are in East Asia. South Korea has a, a birth replacement rate of, I think, 0.8 children per woman. The same in Hong Kong, it's about one. China, despite on a per capita basis not being as wealthy as, as Europe and the US, uh, has, has birth replacement rates around the same level already. Um, in Europe, you've got countries like, I think, uh, the lowest is Malta, 0.8 children uh, per woman. So again, very low. But it's not just a European issue. Like I say, you've also got examples in China. This presents massive problems, as I've said, for growth, for public spending, um, uh, and, uh, and a few other things too. Geopolitically, for instance, you know, China wants to be the world leader of the 21st century. It's going to be very hard when its working age population is shrinking from here on in, which it is, by the way. While in the case of the US, because of immigration, it's not. So aging demographics, a huge prism through which to understand so many issues in the 21st century. But in terms of this issue, pensions, yes, it poses really fundamental problems. And in terms of my book, Michael, I've not got to the, you know, the, the solutions part of things yet. But I think what we're going to have to realize is that, okay, we may need to, and by the way, we should be having far longer lives than we presently do. We're failing in this regard, not just here in the UK, but the US too. China has a longer life expectancy than in the US, which is incredible. Um, but we need to have a system where, yes, people probably do work a little bit later than we were thinking 20, 30 years ago. But I think we're going to need um, a four-day week, 
I think we should really be transitioning to shorter weeks and, and breaks in one's life. Because what we're going away from, and I'll finish with this, is the classical model of the 20th century was, you know, um, childhood, adolescence, middle age, old age. We're moving away from that now quite significantly. People are having children much later in life. People, some people are able to work later because of good health. And it seems also that we have an extended period now of adolescence because we want a highly qualified labor force. So some people, if they're doing PhDs uh, or if they're doing graduate education through maybe to their early 30s, might live the kind of lifestyles we associated with teenagers 30, 40 years ago. So we need to fundamentally rethink that model. And, and I think that has to go hand in hand with simply working less, having a policy around more children, um, making it easier for people to have children, and socializing elderly care. No, I think that, that's got a lot to it. I mean, when I think about this from a, I don't, I don't really, the economics of pensions I haven't thought enough about really. But in terms of what I would like my lifestyle to be like and what seems like a sort of sensible um, compromise, I suppose, in terms of sort of expanding um, life expectancies is I would say it, it does seem a little bit bizarre to me that you're supposed to work 40 hours a week, work yourself to death right up until 65 and then you do no work at all. It just doesn't seem like how I want to organize my life. I would much prefer to sort of have a very good work-life balance and then keep working until I feel like I'm unable to work any longer. Now, obviously, if you're a builder or a garbage collector, then I think the the limit on how long you can work is going to be much shorter, probably, than if you were someone who is a podcast host, for example. Right? I feel like I, I'd, I'd quite like probably to keep doing journalism into my late sixties, but I wouldn't. But I, I'd want to be doing it on 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 reduced hours and I want work-life balance throughout my life. I feel like that, that's probably um, where hopefully we'll we'll end up. Let's go on to our next story. In February last year, with inflation increasing on the back of rising energy prices, the governor of the Bank of England had a message for workers. He called for wage restraint. In other words, don't ask for a real terms pay rise. We spent the year since then critiquing that argument. Why, when the cost of living rises, should it be workers who pay the price? Why is it always workers who are asked to show restraint when bargaining for decent wages and not um, firms who are asked to show restraint when it comes to their profits, right? Or, or landlords hiking rents. Well, a year later, it seems that message might have gotten through. Not because Andrew Bailey watches Navarra Media, of course. We can speculate on what caused the change. But in any case, here he is speaking on Radio 4. I say this about price setting. As you say, it's, it's important about price setting. that the, Unfortunately, many, many of these inflationary pressures have come from outside. The biggest source of this is that, very sadly, is the terrible war going on in Ukraine. If, if all prices try to beat inflation, then we will get domestic inflation. It, it will start repeating itself. And that's why we've had to raise interest rates to counter that. Now, I do see, you know, I do see encouraging signs. There is, you know, there is evidence of, of encouraging progress. But we have to be extremely vigilant on that front. And I would say to people who are setting prices, you know, please understand, you know, if we get inflation embedded, interest rates will have to go up further. And, you know, higher inflation really benefits nobody. It hurts people and it particularly hurts the least well-off in society. Who are you talking to there when you say people setting prices? Well, uh, uh, so when, when companies set prices, I understand that they have to reflect the costs that they face. But what I would say, please, is that when, you know, when we are setting prices in the economy uh, and you know, people are looking forwards, 
we do expect inflation to come down sharply this year. And, and, and I would just say, please bear that in mind. So that was interesting. He's moved from showing wage restraint to showing price restraint. I mean, he's, I think he still wants wage restraint. But I mean, is it significant, this, this shift? It made headlines this morning. Is it significant? No, Michael, he's all at sea. He's all at sea. You know, and this whole the, the limiting of inflation from prices. Inflation is prices. Okay, let's just get this right. Either you believe in the market system or you don't. If you believe in a market system, this is their critique of central planning, is that no central planner can internalize as much information as the price mechanism. And the market is millions of consumer choices channeled through the price mechanism. And it's the, this providential super intelligence that we can never understand don't mess with it. And the people that believe in market economics, that's, that's their view. So either you believe in the market determining prices, which includes how much people sell things for, or you don't. It's really weird that something like Andrew Bailey says, well, I believe in market economics, but I'm going to tell you off if as a business you determine you have to rise your prices. Well, they're going to rise prices for a bunch of reasons, right? Yes, some because they want to make loads of money, they're price gouging. But the, the common reason will be the prices I pay for things have gone up, therefore my prices have to go up. It's not, it's not rocket science. So inflation more widely in the economy is being uh, reflected in the prices I then pass on to consumers. Um, so what basically Andrew Bailey is saying is, what, I don't know, take less profit, lay people off? I don't know. You tell me, Michael. There's not much fat to cut in most businesses. So this was a strange interview for me for a bunch of reasons. And I think it goes back to something quite key here, which is everybody, everybody has been saying, by the end of 2023, inflation is going to go back to 2.5%. Two, two Why? Because it's been 2.5% two, two for the last 30 years, right? That, that, was the re, that was their thinking. Since the, late, you know, the 1990s, well, okay, inflation was rocketing for most of the 1970s. It was high for the first half of the 1980s, right? We've had extended periods of high inflation before, very recently, in, in his lifetime. But there's this ideological assumption. Well, it's like gravity. Well, inflation went up, but it will, it will magically come down. Because since I've been a professional economist, it's magically come down. Well, why should, why should it? Show me you're working. And why should it come down that quickly? Why should it come down that quickly? You, you show me you're working. So they were predicting 2 to 3% inflation this year. And then, of course, I think it was on, on Tuesday, Michael, maybe Wednesday, we saw that for February, inflation went up to 10.4%. It had gone up from 10.1 to 10.4. And they were predicting it would fall further. And it's gone back up again. And they can't explain that. So now they're doing this thing of like, we, we live in a market economy, but please, if you set prices, don't set them too high. Well, if, if you think they're too high, then you're, you're the Bank of England. Let's, let's do some price fixing. But you, do, you don't do that because you believe in the market economy. Well, it's just, this, it's just this fluff, Michael. We live in an age now where the bureaucrats of our system claim to believe in some things because those things no longer work. They sort of say some weird stuff on the side, which doesn't really matter. No, people aren't going to sort of not increase prices just because Andrew Bailey says so on Radio 4. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I think a couple of things about this. I suppose in, one way why it, it, it's the most, the tiniest modicum of progress, I'd say, is because it was very frustrating when you had the government sort of saying inflation is all about wage demands. They're saying this, all we need to be worried about is a wage price spiral. What we need to do is have workers not really demand the full price of their labor because, of course, the cost of living has gone up just as the cost of production have gone up for companies. The cost of living has gone up for workers. But what we were told is that workers have to show restraint and companies and landlords, et cetera, they don't. So there, there is a, a very minor discursive change here. I think the point I fundamentally agree with you on the Aaron, is that this is Andrew Bailey speaking from a position of absolute impotence. And I think to be fair to him, I mean, I don't know his politics, I'm sure it's not mine. But when it comes to 
other mechanisms of controlling inflation. Like as, as far as I understand, the Bank of England doesn't have within its mandate, within its power to fix prices. And I think what he's demonstrating here with what is fairly incoherent saying, please don't increase prices. I mean, why would a business listen to that? Why, why, why would they care what he is saying when it comes to, to that question? Is why this shouldn't all be in the hands of a central bank, right? This is precisely why fiscal policy should be done by governments. That's what Keynes wanted, right? So, so if, you, if you've got very high inflation, one thing you could do is massively increase taxes on the rich, right? That will reduce their spending power. So you'll take some demand out of the economy, but you'll do it in a more equitable way than just rising interest rates in the hope that unemployment will increase. So if, if, if the government took seriously their responsibility for inflation and did things like tax the rich when inflation is high, then we wouldn't have to have you know, this incredibly incoherent sort of plea from a central banker to say, please, businesses, don't try and make profits so that we can all keep prices down. I mean, wh what do you make of that, Aaron? Do you think this is just showing the impotence of monetary policy and why, why governments need to remember and return to fiscal policy when it comes to things such as inflation? Totally, totally. Something like Andrew Bailey would say at the same time, businesses, <clears throat> and we can debate whether this is true or not, businesses make profits and they reinvest the profits into fixed capital and to... And to into increasing productivity, into their employees, into bigger premises, into meeting consumer demand. Profit's good because it does all these things. Now he's saying, no, profit's bad. Don't, don't increase your prices. Don't have profit because of inflation. They know fuck all, Michael. None of this makes any sense by the very things they claim to care about and they believe in. None of it makes sense. This is a guy who believes in the market system and profits and yet is saying don't make profits and he's in, he wants to intervene in the market without intervening in the market because of the impotence thing. The problem here, Michael, and this is where we're getting into the real nuts and bolts, which affects millions of people, is that we saw over the, this week as well, I think it was the day after the 10.4% inflation figure, interest rate, the base rate of interest by the Bank of England, of course, people have mortgages or credit cards, the, the interest they pay is higher than this, but it's indexed to this. The base rate of interest, which is the rate of interest at which the Bank of England gives money to banks, which then give money to other people. I know that sounds like a kind of rigged system, maybe it is, but park that for a moment. Now went up to 4.25%. Now, they've said they'll keep on increasing interest rates, as he talked about there in that clip, until they get inflation down. Now, the target for inflation in this country is 2%. If it got to 3%, I think everybody would be very happy. So let's say it has to go to 3%. They will keep on increasing interest rates until inflation gets to 3% or lower. Well, we're up to 10.4%. And we've got the interest rate now at 4.25%. So that, that interest rate will have to keep on going up now. And, and they were saying, you know, as if by magic, by the end of 2023, we'll have inflation at 2%, 3%. Therefore, we can start to bring interest rates down again. That was the plan. And by the way, that is critical if the Tories do not want to get destroyed at the next general election. Forget what Keir Starmer says. Forget about policies and small boats. The, the, the London big house pundits and the media class love to talk about it because it makes them feel important. On the fundamentals, if we have 10% inflation in the next general election and interest rates at 6%, 7%, which I'm not predicting, but if we did, the government's toast. Right? It doesn't matter. If we get uh, inflation carrying through at the end of this year and it's still well above 2 to 3% and interest rates keep on having to go up, let's say they hit 6 7%. Michael, my God, I'm sure I don't need to explain this to a lot of our audience. If interest rates hit 6%, you know, people like to talk about the early 1990s and we had 14% interest rates and, and repossessions and people putting their house keys through the, you know, the letterbox of the estate agent because they didn't want to pay the mortgage anymore. Well, okay, 6%, 7% isn't 14%, but because people are so, more, so much more massively leveraged now with debt because house prices are so much larger, interest rates of 6 or 7% now will feel like 14% felt 
uh, in, in the early 1990s. That is a huge political crisis in waiting, Michael. So people like Andrew Bailey, right now, you know, he's saying, please, on BBC Radio 4, please don't put prices up. When he gets home, he's begging on his knees, please, God, in inflation has to go down because if interest rates keep on having to go up to 6 7%, all bets are off in terms of the political consequences. Let's go on to our next story. Lawrence Fox is a Nepo baby. He was born into a family of actors, playwrights and talent agents, and he would go on to star in shows such as Lewis, so an actor from an acting family. Um, he's also a right-wing populist speaking out against extreme political correctness and COVID vaccines, a funny combination which has emerged on the right. And he's also a questionable father. Take a look at this. I started to notice weird things happening with my kids. So the first one was my eldest son a few years ago. I said, um, give me a kiss goodnight or a hug goodnight, whatever. And he went, no, you need to ask my consent. And I was like, do I? And he said, yeah, at school they say you've got to ask consent. And I said, I'm your dad. And he said, yeah, but you still have to ask consent. And I went, okay, we're, we're going to have a little lesson on consent here. Consent is don't touch a stranger's private parts, all right? That's consent. Don't touch, invade someone's space in that part. I'm your father. So anyway, I wrote to school and I said, what's going on here? Because he's obviously not understood consent. And they said, well, we don't really get to the sexual part of it until later. And I said, well, you can take it from me. I've just taught both of my children consent mm. lesson one in about five minutes. And then I noticed that... Um, you know, I start going, okay, well, where is this stuff coming from? So it comes out of relationship sex education classes and PSHE and stuff like that. So I, I got some lesson plans from another school and found out what was on it, which is privilege, skin colour privilege, gender ideology, um, diversity, equity and inclusion, all of the things that you just don't want kids being taught at a young age when they're confused as it is. And so I thought we got to change that. So we're going to do that as well. That's what we're, we're which is our next sort of cultural project, which is going to be called bad education. We just like to put bad in front of everything. <laughs> I mean, that was a very bad definition of consent. The idea that consent is don't touch a stranger's private parts. You know, consent only involves strangers. You don't need consent if you're someone's father. You don't need consent if you know the person. Now, obviously, obviously, most abuse, most sexual exploitation comes from people who know the person. Right. So it's incredibly important that when children are taught about consent, it includes people they know. The idea I don't need consent because I'm your father is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Right. Now, Aaron, I mean, I, Lawrence Fox obviously felt comfortable saying that publicly. To me, that's a massive red flag. I kind of disagree, Michael. Oh, interesting. Go on. I think clearly around adults in your life, clearly, I think it's a very healthy thing to say, look, if you're going to come close to me, you need to have consent. But I think there is something instinctively strange about a teacher telling a child the parameters of their personal relationships with their children. You know, a child, for instance, might want connection. They might seek connection with their parents. They might want comforting in a personal moment. And they may think, actually, this isn't normal. I have to ask my parents' consent. Maybe my parents aren't comfortable there. I think it's kind of, I think it's a bit weird, frankly. I mean, I'm, maybe I want to get cancelled for that. I don't think I will. <laughs> I, I think that the whole idea that, I think what he's saying is completely wrong, by the way. And this is part of a sort of wider, a wider tactic within the culture war. There was a piece recently by Eric Kaufman in The, um, in the Telegraph 
Um, and it was built upon a, a, a policy exchange report he did. And the piece in the Telegraph said, school indoctrination is turning British youth woke and Tories remain silent. Uh, and that was based upon the uh, report he wrote for Policy Exchange, The Political Culture of Young Britain. Now, what was really, really interesting about that, Michael, was that he asked a bunch of people who were 18, 19 about their relationship to certain woke ideas. And they were more likely to have heard about these woke ideas from their parents before they heard about them from school, which he conveniently doesn't mention in the Telegraph piece. So this idea of, for instance, uh, white privilege, white supremacy, uh, all these ideas that the likes of uh, Lawrence Fox and his uh, comrades rail against, actually children were more likely to get these ideas from their parents than from school. So I would push back actually against some of the core claims he's making. Children aren't you know, receiving indoctrination and, and you know, uh, via schooling at the cost of their parents. Actually, many of the quote unquote woke ideas that Lawrence Fox finds rather unsavory are being taught to children by their parents. Because of course, many parents now, like Lawrence Fox, are in their early 40s, late 30s. They have quite different social attitudes on things like LGBT rights, race, than they did to their own parents. So I, I would push back actually against that, Michael. And I think us even reproducing the idea that schools are telling children what to think and feel, and they're using that against their own parents. I think that's part of a moral scare, which isn't actually accurate, isn't happening. Uh, no, I'm going to completely disagree with you. I mean, obviously, I don't know what was said in that class, right? But I actually, and, and one of the reasons I put this in wasn't just to sort of have a go at Lawrence Fox, because I think this is actually a positive story. And I mean, the reason I say this, I've been hanging around with my my niece. My sister's got a sort of three-year-old niece who's sort of speaking and very social. And I kind of really notice how she is, this three-year-old, very, very aware of boundaries and sort of like, I don't want to do this. I do want to do that. And you know, that might sound precocious to sort of like a, a very traditional parent. But I actually think it's really, really great, right? I, I think that kids these days do have more of a sense of, 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 of the fact that they can police their own boundaries in a way that maybe people didn't in the past. And I think for most people, this doesn't matter. Like, it, uh, you know, it, for most people, it doesn't really matter if your parent says, oh, go on, give me a kiss. Or if your parent says, can I give you a kiss? Right. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a different difference of language. For most people, it doesn't matter. But child abuse does exist. Right. And if we can change norms whereby it is normal to ask for consent. And it doesn't have to be, you know, can I have your written consent so I can hug you, child? It's it's just changing our language, saying, oh, go and give me a kiss, to saying, can, can you give me a kiss? And I think the fact that kids are being taught now that they have a right to say no, that consent is important, I think that probably will have the effect that in those minority of cases where child abuse is going on, sexual exploitation is going on, then children are less confused and they have more that they feel more empowered to say that I didn't consent to that, you know, tell their teacher or whatever. So I disagree with you. I think that this is actually quite an important lesson, which is being taught to kids from their teachers. I'm going to come back to this, Michael. Look, I think, I think you're buying into a moral scare where literally what you're saying is that all, all parents are potential, are potential sexual predators and that schools are now um, protecting children from the protect, potential sexual deviancy of their parents. I, 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 think that's quite a, I think that's quite a dangerous place to be um, and of course, it's and what you're saying is, I agree with you, Michael. And it can just mean a slight shift in our culture from like, oh, give us a kiss. To, can I give you a kiss? I agree with you entirely, Michael. But I think you're buying into a moral scare, which suits uh, Lawrence Fox. Which no, is that, to say I, that actually, 
because I, 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 don't, I don't think this is a problem. I don't think most children are having that conversation with their parents. I think he's a bit doolally. I think he's probably exaggerating something, which, hey, look, maybe this didn't even happen, Michael. And I think well, it, it might be the, It him. might be the case that he's, he's, he's very, you know, I, I, I do not want to, sp- I, don't, I know nothing about how he is with his children. I'm clearly not calling him a child abuser for a start. But <laughs> it, it might be the case that one of the reasons this conversation got a little bit awkward is because maybe he is a bit too forthcoming and the kid wanted a bit more space, right? It, it, that's very plausible. And I think if the kid wanted a bit more space for them to have a language to express that isn't, isn't a bad thing. And I do is think that is that is that new? Look, I remember my my mum or my uncles, aunties, my dad trying to give me a kiss or a cuddle when I was a kid, and me saying, "Get off!" That's what kids do. Is that new? Again, like I think we're buying into a frame. This is new culture war. Teachers, is that new? I suppose. What, so what? So, so why I sort of introduced my anecdote, and I mean, I don't hang out with that. You know, this this is a very small data pool. I'm sort of pulling from here, drawing from here. But when I think about my niece, I do think she she talks about these things in a different way to which I was used to. And I think at first it can be a bit like, oh. You know, that's, a, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't, no, I don't want to hang out here. It's like, oh, you can feel a little bit offended. But then you realize, actually, this is really cool. It's really good that like kids feel empowered to sort of set those boundaries and you just need to change your language. So I, I, I think it's a healthy change and I do think there has been a change. And I don't, I don't think it's that kids are, you know, writing huge essays on consent and saying, oh, you've used your parental privilege against me, blah, blah, blah. It's not that kids have become woke. It's just that I do think that sort of probably... <laughs> Because there is an understanding that sexual exploitation did go unnoticed too often in the past, that you have had development within sort of child protection services, education, training, sort of pedagogy, where there has been a a sort of consciousness that actually probably we do need to teach kids more about this kind of stuff so that those exceptional circumstances where you have a, a family member who is sexually abusive, so there is a language to resist that. Hold on. Let's say, let's say there's a child, a small, powerless child who's six or seven years old, and then there's a family member, and this happens very frequently, as you've said, well, not very frequently, it, it, it's a mass social phenomenon. Do you think if the child explicitly doesn't consent to something, that would stop a potential sexual abuser? Of course it wouldn't. This isn't about, and again, I don't work in child protection, but from my understanding and sort of my interpretation of this, is it's not about if a child tells their uncle, I don't want to do this, the uncle won't do it. It's about making a child feel empowered and comfortable to tell someone else, right? To tell their teacher or to tell another family member to say, this thing Mm. happened and I didn't consent. Because I think, again, I'm not an expert on this, but my impression is that one of the reasons child abuse is able to continue is because the adult, the, the, the powerful person in the situation really tries to blur the boundaries of consent to sort of say your consent doesn't matter or you have implicitly consented to this, et cetera, et cetera. You, could, you know, there, there are sort of mechanisms of manipulation that the powerful person, the older person in that situation can deploy. And I do think that giving children a language to resist that, not necessarily in, with the person in that room, but to tell someone about it, I think is probably a healthy thing. Okay, let's say it's their grandmother. Their grandmother kisses the child and the child says later, oh, mummy, daddy, I didn't consent to that. I think that's quite sad, personally. I don't, I, I don't I think, think that's... Re- well, I don't think, it's a big, I don't think it's a big problem, actually. I think then you can just say, oh, next time, say, can I give you a kiss? I think it's fine. I don't, I don't think it's a big problem either. I think, I think this is being turned into a moral scare by people like, um, by people like um, Lawrence Fox, and, and we're eating it up. Quickly, just on that report I, rem- I, I, I mentioned earlier... Um, the data from that report said that 11% of children encountered these quote-unquote woke ideas in, in classrooms for the first time, 11%. 50% found them on social media for the first time. So this idea that schools are these madrasses to, to you know, teach these radical ideas to, to children is simply untrue. Most of it's coming from social media. And as I said earlier, more or less the same as with schools. 
is coming from their own parents. So I, I do think this is part of a moral scale which bears no relationship to reality. A young child is more likely to learn about express consent from social media than from schools. I think it's a framing that suits the far right to discredit really important institutions, which we all need, uh, which is, you know, is, is, is primary and secondary education. I think you're blurring two things. I think the sort of like a, you're sort of like kids telling their parents they've got white privilege or whatever. I can see why that would, you know, I think that's not happening and that's a moral scare story. I think kids being taught about consent, that is happening. And that's a good thing. Boris Johnson's grilling by the Privileges Committee has made him a martyr among his followers. This was Nadine Dorries on Talk TV. I don't think there was ever a world in which this committee was going to find Boris innocent. The committee have demonstrated very clearly that they have decided early on to find him guilty. The committee knew that they had not a shred of evidence to prove that he misled with intent. They changed the rules, lowered the bar, and inserted the vague term reckless into the terms of reference. Boris Johnson will be found guilty by this kangaroo court. There is no doubt about that. And that in itself will be a disgraceful and possibly unlawful conclusion with serious reputational consequences. The substantial question is this. Will they impose the 10-day suspension at the point at which they will find him guilty? Doing so would trigger a by-election and end the career of a former prime minister who got us through COVID, got us the vaccines, opened Britain up before other countries, giving us an economic advantage over the rest of the world and led global leaders to support Ukraine against the invasion by Putin. It is unthinkable that they would do so. But if a committee is prepared to bend the rules and change the course of their investigation midway in order to find him guilty, would you put anything past that committee? I wouldn't. Imagine someone bending the rules. Imagine a group of politicians bending the rules. Nadine Doris is absolutely outraged. And she's, who's, who's she defending again? Oh, Boris Johnson, yeah, that guy who would never bend the rules. Um, unfortunately for Nadine Dorries, the general public don't seem to agree with her. This was on this week's Question Time. You're the presenter, Fiona, but we could do a quick straw poll to see how many of the audience well, think Boris Johnson could come well, back. Well, let's, let's, let's just think about this for a minute. I mean, we can do a poll. It's not scientific. I want to emphasise that. There are more people in this audience, because this is where the Question Time audiences are constructed, if you like. There are more people in this audience who voted for Boris Johnson uh, for the Conservative Party than for any other single party here. So let's have a show of hands, shall we? Who, well, who believes Boris Johnson was telling the truth yesterday? <laughs> wow. <Okay>. Wow. <clears throat> who believes there is a way back for Boris Johnson now? Right, one hand. So let, let's hear from you. It's like them saucepans, and he? Nothing sticks to him, so he's probably going to come back anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the one person who thought he could come back didn't have a particularly complimentary view about him. Um, I mean, we talked a lot about people not believing Boris Johnson, I suppose. I think we, it's clear now a majority of the public don't. I suppose what that moment raised for me is... You know, we talk a lot about sort of Trumpian politics in America, where sort of like most people don't really believe what Trump says, but there is this diehard group of people who do think the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it seems here that maybe no one is really on Boris Johnson's side, or potentially just that question time audience wasn't a complete representation of the public. I mean, where do you stand on this? I, th I think that's probably true, Michael, but I also think we have to engage with the possibility that a big chunk of people who did support him 
and to a lesser extent still support him, there's far fewer of them obviously, were, were quite comfortable with the idea that the man is a liar. I think that's a, that's a big part of his vote. I don't think that the however many million people that voted Tory in 2019, 14 million people or whatever, all love the fact that Boris Johnson is a liar. But a big part of his personal political brand was the man was a scoundrel, a cad. And a big, big part of that is, of course, sometimes being rather um, economical with the truth. So I, I, I don't see these two things as necessarily, you know, being at odds. This is somebody who had a pretty appalling CV and biography, you know, sacked from multiple jobs, um, done some pretty unsavory things too, tried to organize, you know, the, the beating up of a journalist uh, to help out an old friend. And yet, still, despite all of that, he became leader of the Conservative Party and later Prime Minister. So I, I don't see, the, see these two things at odds, necessarily. I, I don't think he's coming back. I think he's deeply, deeply unpopular with the public. But I, I still think that the Boris stands, who, who do certainly exist, wouldn't really care if the chap was lying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the societal division might not be between those who believe Boris Johnson and don't believe Boris Johnson, but the people who care if he's lying and the people who don't. I think there's definitely something to that. Um, Aaron, it's been a very lively show. Thank you for joining me tonight. My pleasure, Michael. Just to quickly go back on the Lawrence Fox story, because some people in the comments are saying, oh, Mike, I don't think we even necessarily disagree as much as maybe that, that seemed. I simply don't think it happened. I think Lawrence Fox is making it up. That's, that's fundamentally what I'm saying. Whereas, you know, um, you, know you, you obviously think it's a red flag. I, I think he's literally making something up. and He's caricaturing a situation, I think in all likelihood, because he sees it as a, a, a potential political cause, which he can attach himself to, limp it like. Um, that's just my take. And I suppose just to clarify what I mean by a red flag, because I don't want to get sued here. I think it's, it's a red flag to be teaching your children that consent is only something which concerns strangers. If, if you think that consent isn't required for people you know, that's, that's a very bad consent lesson. That's the, the, that's the opposite of what should be included in a lesson on consent. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back on Monday night for another live stream from 6 p.m. Have a fantastic evening and weekend as well. Um, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.